I'm going to tell you something. I mean, none of us were like this before. I'm going to go to college, and I'm going to prove you wrong. Hmm? I like this. This is sacred ground. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. I just want answers, and I, but I want the truth. Does he have a crush on me? No. Figures. Hearing is seeing. Hearing is seeing. From American Public Media, this is an APM Reports documentary. Almost half of the people released from prison are back within three years. But there is a way to change that. A diploma really is a crime stopper. They got the books open and they serious at it. Got pencils and paper and they going over the lesson. There were people that were very optimistic, saying they would never take away college. It's the only thing that's going to give us a chance of staying out. Well, we don't have any paper, pens, books, internet, or library. <laughs> but other than that, it's a piece of cake. <laughs> Coming up, rewriting the sentence, College Behind Bars, from APM Reports. Sean Pika isn't the kind of guy that you might expect to find in a maximum security prison. He grew up in a quiet middle-class neighborhood on Long Island. His parents were New York City cops. He wanted to be an Eagle Scout and a carpenter. I came from a good neighborhood, a large, supportive family. I had never been in trouble before. But when Sean was 16 and in high school, he did what he calls the horrible, horrible thing. There was a girl in his homeroom class. Her name was Cheryl. A lot of what happened between Cheryl and Sean is disputed, but the essential story goes like this. Cheryl says that her father was raping her, and she hired Sean to kill him. On February 5th of 1986, Sean hid behind a tree on Cheryl's lawn and shot her father dead. He was arrested, convicted, and sent to a maximum security prison. He was still a kid when he went in, so baby-faced that the other inmates called him Angel. There was just this picture in my head as I went into the prison system serving this, you know, 24-year sentence that my life was over, that there was going to be nothing at the end of this worth salvaging, and there was just no future ahead for me. But pretty soon after he started serving his sentence, Sean signed up for a program offered by a local college at the prison. And he says that taking classes kind of broke down the gray walls of the prison— let him imagine something else on the other side. Literature classes and learning about the arts and humanity and critical thinking and Socrates and reading about them and discussing them. And in the end, as I started to go to school and, and kind of think about what the future looked like for me, it really did change for one reason only, that I had a chance to go to college. American Public Media, this is an APM Reports documentary, Rewriting the Sentence, College Behind Bars. I'm Stephen Smith. And I'm Samara Freemark. If you ask people what the purpose of prison is, you'll probably hear a lot about punishment. But you might also hear about reform, about how to take people who commit crimes and change them into the kind of people who don't. Because the thing about people who go to prison is that they almost always come out again. More than 600,000 people will leave prison just this year. And within three years, almost half of those people will be back behind bars. That's called the recidivism rate, and it's something that troubles a lot of people because we don't like the idea of inmates cycling in and out of prison, and also because it costs a lot to jail people, almost $32,000 per inmate per year. The good news is that there are a few things we know about that can lower the recidivism rate. And one of the best and most cost-effective is education. In 2013, a report from the RAND Corporation found that when inmates took any kind of education classes while they were in prison, the recidivism rate when they got out dropped by 13 percentage points. When they took college classes, the recidivism rate dropped by 16 percentage points. So this is a little hard to visualize, but basically it means that if you take 100 inmates who don't get education while they're in prison and release them, about 43 will be back within three years. But if you take the same 100 inmates and this time you educate them and release them, three years later, only 27 will be back. Now, those 16 hypothetical inmates, they might not sound that impressive, but if you multiply that across all the people who are released from prison every year— it starts to look like a lot. Now, you'd think that something that works so well and saves so much money would be widely available. But today, higher education programs are almost non-existent in American prisons. And to find out why, you have to go back. All the way back to the 1970s. And to give you a sense of how even experts were thinking about America's prison population back then... Let me introduce you to a guy named John Linton. 
Until this year, he was the director of correctional education programs at the Federal Department of Education. But in 1970, he was working in prison education in Maryland. And at the time, it was a pretty low-profile field because the nation's prison population was one-eighth what it is today. (laughs) Yep, good old days. Early in his career, Linton wrote a grant proposal asking the federal government for money to put together a guide to design classrooms in prisons. It was rejected, and we asked for the scoring sheets. And the primary reason it was rejected because there wasn't any anticipation that there would be more prisons built. Like, no, we're done. <laughs> we've, we've capped out. <laughs> yes, exactly. So this was the mentality at the time. But then... From dusk last night until dawn today, eight shootings and one stabbing. Another sign of a society under siege. By the 1960s, crime rates had started to rise, and they kept climbing for three decades. The drug-addicted underclass with no sense of humanity, no sense of civilization, and no sense of the rules the of The kinds life. of kids that are called super predators, no conscience, no empathy. The number one problem in America, crime without punishment. By the 1990s, there was this growing sense that what America needed to do was put more people in prison and make prisons worse places to be. We knew that there was a storm brewing. This is Sean Pika again. In the early 90s, he was serving time in a New York state prison and taking classes through a local college that ran a program there. We started to hear that folks were really not happy with the fact that we were getting a free education. Most students in PICA's program paid for it using Pell Grants. That's the pot of money that helps low-income students pay for college. And since the beginning of the federal Pell program, inmates had been eligible. In fact, Claiborne Pell, who the grants are named after, specifically designed the program that way. He said that education is our primary hope for rehabilitating prisoners, that diplomas are crime stoppers. But by the 1990s, that idea was falling out of favor. In 1994, the NBC program Dateline aired an episode called Society's Debt. It was set up as an expose on prisoners using Pell Grants. So many deserving young people can't afford to go to college, but for many others, there's no problem. Who are the lucky ones with no income and plenty of time to study? Prison inmates. Thank you very much for killing somebody. We're going to give you a college education. The day after Society's Debt aired, during a debate in the U.S. House over the massive 1994 crime bill, a congressman named Bart Gordon proposed an amendment that would take Pell Grants away from prisoners. Just because one blind hog may occasionally find an acorn doesn't mean many other blind hogs will. The same principle applies to giving federal Pell Grants to prisoners. Certainly there is an occasional success story, But when virtually every prisoner in America is eligible for Pell Grants, national priorities and taxpayers lose. I talked to a few guys who were incarcerated back in 1994, and they all remembered hearing about the Pell Grant debate and talking about it on the prison yard. One of them told me that prison is like the biggest game of telephone you've ever seen. So one guy would hear that Pell Grants were under threat, and by the next day, everyone in prison would be talking about it. This is Sean Pika again. There were people that were very optimistic, saying they would never take away college. You know, we kind of like, like, hey, they're right. Why would they take education? It's the only thing that's going to give us a chance of staying out. A recorded vote is ordered. Those in favor of the amendment will vote aye. Those opposed will vote no. Watching the Pell debate on C-SPAN, you can see the recorded vote totals creep up as the representatives vote. And then... The yeas are 312. The nays are 116. The amendment is agreed to. It passes. And that's it. Literally one day, the college programs, they came in and packed up the crates with books and unplugged the computers and and just quietly walk out of the prison. And it was gone. Before the 1994 crime bill passed, There were about 350 college degree programs in prisons across the country. But without money to support them, the colleges and universities that ran the classes pulled out. Ten years later, there were just 12 programs in 12 prisons in the entire country. It's been more than two decades since Pell funding for prisoners went away. 
And today, there are just a handful of four-year bachelor's and two-year associate degree programs left in state and federal prisons. Many of them are nonprofits funded by donations and run by volunteers. I spent a semester visiting a program like that at San Quentin State Prison, just across the bay from San Francisco. It's called the Prison University Project, or PUP, and students in the program earn associate's degrees. But most students start with what PUP calls its college prep classes. They're designed to take students who may have never graduated high school, who haven't had any formal education for decades, and step-by-step turn them into students who can succeed in a college classroom. And that all starts with new student orientation. To get to the classrooms at San Quentin, you pass through security. Guards check your ID, they wand you down, and they buzz you through two gates and a very thick metal door. And then you walk out onto the prison yard. Hey guys, how you doing? San Quentin has a range of security levels, from minimum to death row. And so some of the inmates have a certain freedom of movement. This evening, a lot of people are out on the yard playing basketball or just hanging around talking. All right, brother. Across the yard is a set of portable trailers where classes take place. On the night of the orientation, one of the rooms in the trailers is filled with men sitting at tables, guys mostly in their 30s and 40s. There are pup staff there and guards watching over the whole thing. The head of the Prison University Project is a woman named Jody Lewin. Can I just ask how many of you transferred here to be in the program? Most hands in the room go up. And can I just ask how long it took you to get here? 17 months. I've been working my way here for probably five years. Five months. Ten years. Because the thing is, San Quentin is the only prison in the California system that offers this kind of program. So if you're an inmate and you want to go to college, you have to work your way here by staying out of trouble and creating a record of good behavior. And that can take a really long time. And once you get to San Quentin, you can't just sign up for the PUP program. There's a wait list for it with almost 100 names on it. So you have to wait for another three or six months before you can actually enroll in classes. We're so happy you made it. So glad you wrote. So glad you got here. Welcome. And from there on out, it's a pretty standard college orientation. They do an icebreaker. They talk about expectations and materials. They talk about academic preparedness. Hey, let me ask you this. I've been, I have been a school man for years, right? So I'm kind of apprehensive about whether this is the right thing for me or not, right? So and it's not college. It's college prep. And there's no pressure at that point. The guy fielding that question is named Tommy Winfrey. He's a graduate of PUP, and he works as a clerk for the program. But he's also an inmate here. So I'm going to guess most of you guys are here to get one of these. This this is the diploma I got in 2014. I'll tell you, uh, I spent a lot of time on a lot of different prison yards. Uh, Prison was one way for me. Coming to college is, is totally different. This is, a, this is a place outside of prison. Although we exist inside of a prison, this is actually a college campus. And there's going to be some things in the classroom that you're going to get, have to get used to. Race is going to be heavily discussed in these classrooms. You're going to be forced to read things that you might not want to read about homosexuality. I sat in a classroom right next door and read Brokeback Mountain out loud. A very graphic short story about homosexuality. I mean, it's funny, chuckle, but those are things that happen in college and don't happen on the prison yard. I mean, the college is a different place. Before the semester starts, PUP has students write what they call academic autobiographies. Reading them is like reading a catalog of all the reasons people fail at school. I didn't know I had ADD. I was expelled in ninth grade for assaulting a teacher. I was an honor student, but I was in foster care. I dropped out of high school to support my kids. And one of the first PUP students I met checked a lot of those boxes. You're talking to Clay or Clarence Long. I met Clarence Long at one of the first college prep English classes of the semester. We were in one of the classrooms in the cluster of trailers on the side of the yard. There were fluorescent lights, no windows. 
about a dozen students, all dressed in pale blue scrubs with the word prisoner printed on the back in bright yellow letters. It was noisy. There were a lot of other inmates and guards hanging around outside the room. Clarence was sitting stiffly at a table with two other students. He still seemed to be settling into things a bit. Clarence is 58, and he's been in prison for almost 31 years. Yeah, long time, huh? (laughs) Clarence hated school growing up. He sat in the back of the classroom. Teachers ignored him or they punished him, but he says they never really taught him. And so the years passed. Third grade, Clarence couldn't read. Fifth grade, couldn't read. Ninth grade, still couldn't read. Oh, I went all the way to 11th grade. I used to never learn how to read while I was in school. And this whole time, no one seemed to notice. They just passed me on. Clarence dropped out in 11th grade. He started dealing drugs. In 1985, he was convicted of strangling an ex-girlfriend who had threatened to tell police he was selling cocaine. So there Clarence Long was, 27 years old, sitting in a prison cell and wondering what to do with the rest of his life. And he decided to teach himself to read. Teach myself, because I was too ashamed to let anybody know. Everyone else would go off to play basketball or tennis, and Clarence would stay there, alone in his cell, puzzling over the letters, trying to pry some meaning from the symbols on the page. For 19 years, I taught myself to read. 19 years. And then one day, Clarence got a letter from his mother. He'd gotten mail from home before, but this time, for the very first time, he could actually read what was written on the page. And I was like, man, what is this, right? And I couldn't understand it. The letter was gibberish. Then I realized that my mother couldn't read either. Which suddenly explained a lot. Why his mom had never read to him or even noticed when he didn't do his homework. And realizing that kind of pushed Clarence to keep studying. He enrolled in the GED program. And I got in school and I started liking it. I thought I was just going to get in just to pass the GED and come out. But I got in there and I started liking it because I was learning stuff I had never learned before. And when I graduated from getting my GED in 2015, they said, we're going to sign you up for college. I was like, really? I just thought I was done with school. Now I'm going to college, right? So being in this classroom today, in a class that is all about reading and writing and discussing ideas, this moment is the endpoint of an extremely long and extremely improbable journey for Clarence Long. And it is a moment that slightly terrifies him. All right, guys. Good afternoon. How's everyone doing? Tonight, college prep English is taught by a volunteer named Austin Danhouse. All right, so guys, the warm-up today. Chris, will you read the warm-up for us? Please describe what the word freedom means to you. How is your understanding different from others? Great. Would anyone like to start our conversation off? There's Chris Marshall with a parole date in 2032, James Wortham, high school dropout, 30 years in prison for second-degree murder, Andrew Wadsworth, who has a tattoo under his left eye and keeps a faded, folded-up picture of his grandmother in the breast pocket of his prison scrubs, Sidney Johnson in since 1998, and Clarence Long. Well, uh, me, I, what I realize is that freedom has to start within. Mm. And my mm. freedom restarted within once I realized that uh, I was in control of my emotions. And once I realized that, I couldn't wait. And I can't wait until I'm out to be feel free mm. or to feel the freedom. I start feeling that while I'm in here. Yeah. So when, I'm, when I do change locations, won't nothing change. Yeah. I still had that freedom already in my head. Yeah. The simplest and most obvious argument you can make in favor of educating prisoners is this, that education helps you get a job, and jobs keep people on the straight and narrow. And there is some truth to that argument, but it's a little more complicated than that which I realized partway through the semester when I talked with a former inmate and PUP graduate named Harrison Sayuna. I met up with Harrison at a Mexican restaurant in Oakland, a block down from the coffee roaster where he works. How did you make it to San Quentin? Um, accidentally. <laughs> Harrison served 21 years in the California prison system for second-degree murder. He got his associate's degree through PUP in 2009. 
When he heard he was getting out, Harrison started looking around at what was going on with the people who were released before him, and it didn't look good. This was 2010, still the Great Recession. It was a tough year for anyone looking to jump into the job market, especially coming from prison. Even in boom years, companies don't hire felons, (laughs) so it was very hard out there. Maybe this was naive, but I was thinking about that fresh degree in Harrison's pocket as a kind of magic amulet, something that would counteract at least some of the prejudice against hiring people with a criminal record. Like, yes, I've got a felony conviction in my past, and that's bad, but I've also got this piece of paper that tells you something else about me that's really good. And Harrison said, sure, maybe, a little, but employers weren't exactly lining up around the block. He ended up getting the job he has now through a program specifically for formerly incarcerated people. I've been locked up for 20 plus years, have no work history. Uh, you know, I've been in there since I was 17, never had a job before in my life. So for most of us, education is, it has its own value, like for education's sake. This is a pretty common story. A lot of former inmates have trouble finding work, even with a college degree. But what's interesting is that even if they don't find jobs, the data seem to show that inmates who get education in prison are still less likely to get arrested for new crimes after they're released. Something about taking classes seems to change them in some way. And Harrison says that's what happened with him. Education changed him in a profound and real way, in a way that cut much deeper than earning potential. And this change, to hear Harrison tell it, was good, but it was also bad. I think for me it was very invasive. That's, no. Wait, what do you mean? Like I, I disconnected from like my culture in some ways. Harrison says now that he's gone through a college program, it's hard for him to talk to the people he grew up with. He feels removed from them. Like everything now is sort of conceptualized academically, whether I like it or not. You're afraid your, your brain would get kind of colonized. Yes, and it, do, it did. It really did. Like, you can't help it. You write so many essays. Your brain starts to function in that way, in how you categorize and look at things and break things down. You sound kind of bitter about it. Because I feel like something's missing, too. Like, there was something that was taken away in that learning process that I didn't know how to, to hold on to. But in some ways, like, that's the benefits and the results of, like, my education. We're in the study hall right now, and they've got outside guests, uh, outside teachers in here helping students uh, with with their homework and with their work. A few weeks after classes started, Clarence Long stopped by the pup study hall at San Quentin. There are rows of long tables, some prisoners working one-on-one with volunteer tutors from the outside, others setting together in small groups for exams. Clarence goes every Monday. They got the books open and they serious at it. I mean, they got pencils and paper and they going over the lesson. So I'm pretty sure that something, something's in the works right now. Clarence had been getting the hang of class. Oh, it was going great. I mean, it's a lot of homework all the time. And uh, writing, forming essays. I've never formed an essay before. It's my first time. Clarence said he had never really read for fun before. He's more of a finance guy, interested in reading about the stock market and thinking about how he'd invest his money if he ever got any. But he had just read an essay in English class about whether the government had the right to quarantine disease carriers, and he was still thinking about it. We run into that in here where people are sick and they don't want to turn themselves in because they get locked up. They don't want to be quarantined. But you can't get a person, everybody that right. They need to be locked up because it, it, it contaminates thousands of people. And I don't want to be one of those people. So I have to take a step back here and say that there are times when it's really strange to be talking to people at San Quentin. It's like there are two Clarence Longs in front of me, the one who's thinking and talking about writers and study hall, and the one who I know because I looked up his criminal history, strangled his ex-girlfriend, stabbed her with what's described as a screwdriver-like instrument, and threw her body into a gully. 
And those two people kind of flicker back and forth in my mind as Clarence talks. Clarence says that after more than three decades in prison, he's changed. He says education is part of that change and part of the way he's preparing for life after prison. But it's about more than that, too. My education is for me. It, it doesn't have nothing to do with me. If I don't ever get out, I'm still going to get my education. At the end of College Prep English, the professors all meet to go over their students' work and decide whether they can pass them on. This past semester, about half the class had to repeat or dropped out or got transferred or paroled out of San Quentin. But Clarence Long, he passed. He'll be moving on to the upper-level College Prep English class, and after that, to the Associate's Degree Program. It took him a while to get here, and he's doing it in a prison uniform. But finally, after all these years... Clarence Long will be going to college. You're listening to an APM Reports documentary, Rewriting the Sentence, College Behind Bars. That was Samara Freemark, and I'm Stephen Smith. A diploma really is a crime stopper. In July of last year, U.S. Attorney General Loretta Lynch visited the Jessup Correctional Institution in Maryland. She was there to announce a new program called Second Chance Pell. It's a pilot program. It will give Pell funding to about 12,000 inmates at prisons across the country. And it's the first time in more than 20 years that prisoners will be able to use Pell grants to pay for higher education. One of the 67 programs chosen to participate in Second Chance Pell is called Hudson Link for Higher Education. It runs classes in prisons in New York State. The director of Hudson Link is a former inmate. That former inmate is Sean Pika, the guy who was 16 when he committed the murder that sent him to prison and whose life was changed by the classes he took behind bars. So after I read all the research on education and recidivism and spent the semester at San Quentin, I started to wonder how many programs like the Prison University Project are out there and what they look like and how they're funded, all these really basic questions. So what'd you find out? Well, I thought this would be a pretty simple research task. So I passed the job on to our colleague, Lila Cherneff. Yep. Uh, my name is Lila. How's that? Lila started off by calling up this guy named Todd Clear. He's a professor of criminal justice at Rutgers University, and he's an expert on prison education. So what we're trying to get a sense of is how many inmates are participating in college programs in this country. Yeah, you know, and that, that is a such a great question, and uh, I have no uh, idea how you would come up with an estimate of that. Okay, so Lila calls a few more people. As I sort of talked out to more and more people, it became a thing. It was widely known that this data doesn't exist. So when you say the data doesn't exist, do you mean that, like, literally no one knows how many people who are in prison are taking higher education courses? Yeah. Often, even the administration in charge of that prison don't know the number of inmates enrolled in post-secondary education in that prison. Let me just underline this for a second. Prisoners are counted all the time. That's kind of the whole point of prison. And we know that prison education is a really powerful tool to combat recidivism. You'd think we'd at least know how widely that tool is being used. But we don't. And it's really hard to draw any meaningful conclusions from that because it feels like this like giant experiment that nobody's keeping track of. The best estimate Lila could find was that between 3 and 6 percent of prison inmates participate in some form of higher education. We called around to a few states to see what was going on in their prisons, and we found this range of educational programs that was pretty astonishing. So, for example, the state of Florida runs prison programs in hydroponics and beekeeping. South Carolina teaches cattle breeding and milk processing. And in New York State, some prisoners are studying Braille transcription. In New Hampshire, where only 15 prisoners are enrolled in higher education programs, the director of correctional education told us a lot of inmates are taking correspondence courses to be pastors and paralegals. And Georgia has just opened its prisons to a state-based degree-granting institution for the first time since Pell Grants went away in 1994. Instead of, say, going through their community college system, Georgia contracted with a school called Life University. Life is the largest chiropractic college in the world. 
It's known for its stellar rugby team. And the 15 prisoners and 15 correctional officers in its program will earn associates' degrees in something called positive human development and social change. So depending on what state you commit a crime in and what prison you're sent to after you commit that crime, your mileage, as they say, will vary dramatically. Yeah. And maybe the best example I found of that crazy randomness was at a maximum security prison in Indianapolis called the Indiana Women's Prison, or IWP. Good afternoon. My name is Kimberly Baldwin. I first heard about the prison scholars of IWP when they presented their research at this year's meeting of the American Historical Association. The conference was in Atlanta, and the women weren't able to attend, being, you know, in prison. So they appeared by video. The paper I will be presenting to you today is entitled Counterfeit Decency, Charity as Exploitation in the Creation of Women's Reformatories. This paper challenges the notion that reformatory institutions of the In one video, century, you see a prisoner named Kim Baldwin sitting at a table in a white cinder block room. She's wearing tan prison scrubs and glasses. She looks nervous. She takes a deep breath and then lets it out. But then she begins speaking clearly and confidently. And if you close your eyes and just listen, Kim's presentation is indistinguishable from the kind of lecture you'd hear delivered on the campus of any elite college. There is an underside to every age about which history does not often speak, because history is written from the records left by the privileged. I met Kim Baldwin and a couple of other IWP students a few months later at the Indiana Women's Prison. Let's just do your IDs first, so I have your correct pronunciation of your names on tape. Would you like us to go in chronological order? Because oh, like we actually dead. have a chronological order. Do we? Yeah, we do. You were here first, and then me, and then Kim. Wow. Okay. I guess that's me. Um, Michelle Jones. My name is Anastasia Schmid. Kimberly Baldwin. Michelle Jones got here first in 1997. Anastasia Schmid came a few years later in 2002. And Kim Baldwin arrived in 2005. They all have very long sentences, and I know a bit about the specifics of their crimes. But we didn't talk much about that. Anastasia told me they want their work to stand on its own, not to be diminished by their status as inmates. The world wants to focus on why we're here. What they see is the felony of a crime that happened 20 years ago, but they associated with the crime that they are seeing every single day, saturated every time they turn on the television. And that's all people see. Nobody wants to know what in the hell is happening while we're here. Michelle and Anastasia are in their mid-40s. Kim is 50. And they don't look like a group of women you'd necessarily see hanging out together on the outside. Michelle's got long dreadlocks and glasses. Anastasia has dyed blonde hair and tattoos running up her arms. And she's wearing bright lipstick and heavy eyeliner. She studied cosmetology here at IWP. Kim has short, straight brown hair. Looks a bit like a kindergarten teacher. They're all wearing khaki prison uniforms. Anastasia and Michelle showed me the clip-on badges they all wear that read, in capital letters, Offender. Offender Jones, Offender Schmid, Offender Baldwin. Those badges are a sore spot. I mean, what do you think of when somebody is calling you an offender? Every day. Every day. Anastasia told me that all of them had finished high school and dabbled in college before coming to prison, though none of them had earned bachelor's degrees on the outside. We're not the average, and, and we're not what most people assume prisoners to be. We met in IWP's new computer lab, which looked pretty much exactly like the computer lab in my high school, circa 1996. Half the computers in the lab still run floppy disks, and none of them are connected to the Internet. But the women were happy to have them. Take advantage of it. Take advantage of it while it's here because you don't know. Because the women of IWP, they know a lot about losing things. In the late 1990s, a local college started offering classes at IWP. Anastasia and Michelle signed up, along with a ton of other women. Michelle, the woman with the long dreadlocks, says it was kind of a golden age for education at the prison. You would see students coming in and out of their classrooms, coming over here to rush over here to get PowerPoints and papers done. We had study hall, classrooms, I mean, every space in that education building was utilized. There was always something going on. This is Kim Baldwin. I remember one year, Anna, you were working in the laundry reading, was it War and Peace? 
and you just you were sitting waiting for the clothes to finish uh, washing or drying or whatever and and so you spent the summer reading War and Peace I remember that um, but I was I was hungry for knowledge did you guys have graduation ceremonies for Graduation was the biggest day of the year. All the other women in the prison would come and watch and cheer. There were big round tables set up for the reception afterwards, and you could invite seven of your friends and family to come and eat and celebrate with you. The staff came too and sat with you and toasted you. Michelle Jones says it was beautiful. The table decorations, the centerpieces, the name tags, the table covers, the meal, the drinks, the cake. Oh my God, those cakes were so beautiful. You'd have thought they went to the bakery, like some really fine bakery and had these cakes made. And that, you guys did those in culinary, didn't you? Yeah, we did those in culinary. And we were able to make their graduations special because this must be a benchmark moment. Mm -hmm. For some some women who have 20, 30 years to do, this is it. This is all, because once you get your bachelor's degree, you're done. Where's your next benchmark coming from? Your new career, your your house, your home, you're, you're done. Back then, the state of Indiana had one of the most vibrant prison education systems in the country. Seven colleges had full-time programs in Indiana prisons, with 400 professors working with thousands of students. The recidivism stats for its graduates were looking great, The program's administrators considered it a huge success. And because there was no Pell funding by this time, all this was paid for by something called Frank O'Bannon grants. O'Bannon grants give low-income Indiana students money for college. They're like Pell grants on a state level. But this whole time, there was a tiny line buried deep in the O'Bannon legislation that said that the state could deny funds to people in prison. But for years, no one enforced that line. But then, in 2011, for reasons that no one I spoke with could quite explain to me, the state started enforcing it. And all of a sudden, there was no more money for incarcerated students to take college classes. And without money, the college programs all pulled out, including the one at IWP. Anastasia remembers how sudden it all was. So college ends, and volunteers who had been here for a while left and weren't bringing things in. And all of a sudden, it went from this cram-packed schedule to absolutely nothing to do. The boredom hits almost an ungodly level. It's almost maddening. In 2012, a volunteer named Kelsey Kaufman showed up at IWP. Kelsey is a tall woman, a bit gangly, with glasses and short hair. She looks bookish and a little unassuming, but she's actually kind of a badass. She told me she's always been interested intellectually in the question of violence, what violence is and what makes people commit it. The year Kelsey graduated from Yale, 1971, was also the year of the Attica prison revolt. Forty-three people were killed, 32 prisoners and 11 correctional officers and civilians. It dominated the news for weeks. After Attica, I thought to myself that there were really only two ways to understand prisons, and one is to be um, an inmate and the other is to be an officer. And so I didn't have any particular reason to be an inmate, and so I became an officer. Kaufman spent a year working as a guard at a prison in Connecticut, and she says that even today, she's got a core of empathy for people who work in prisons because she knows how hard the job is. She went on to write a book on prison guards. She got a doctorate in education, and she moved to Indiana, where she worked as an independent researcher and prison reform advocate. After Indiana cut funding to college prison programs, Kelsey went to IWP's superintendent and pitched him a program that would be run by volunteers and cost the state nothing. His reaction, the reaction of the Department of Corrections was, um, we doubt you can do that, but if you can, you know, we would o- welcome you with open arms. So Kelsey recruited some volunteers from the faculties of various colleges around the state, and she started designing a program. She wanted to set up something for the students who already had college degrees from the earlier programs at IWP, something that would teach them how to do graduate-level research. And she came up with this idea to study IWP itself. It was known as the oldest women's prison in the nation. 
And I knew that the, the prison, the state archives, and the state library had all the original documents, um, information on every single woman who was in the prison in the 19th century, all this other stuff that nobody else had ever used. And I thought, well, this is great. We'll learn how to use original sources. So she gathered the students together. There were about 20 of them. And she said, I said, we're going to write a, a history of the prison in one semester. There was only one problem. None of the IWP students was particularly interested in 19th century American history. Here's Anastasia Schmid, the woman who also studied cosmetology. <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> it, it's, you know, not, um, was not really my interest, was not something I wanted to do. But they figured it was better than spending their days doing nothing but laundry. So they said, okay. So here was the vision Kelsey laid out for the History Project. IWP was the first women's prison in the nation. It was founded in 1873. And for years, its historical reputation was glowing. The facility's founders were two Quaker women named Rhoda Coffin and Sarah Smith. They founded the prison as a way to separate female inmates from male convicts. And they were held up as models of gentle correction and reform. No one had ever written a full history of the prison before, and Kelsey thought her students could be first. And it's going to be this happy story about how these two Quaker women started the first women's prison and um, and then became the model for women's prisons all over the country. It's a a great story. Yeah, yeah, it is. It would have been a great story. It would have made the Department of Corrections happy and and, um, the prison happy and everything. So they started working. An academic research in prison looks pretty different than in the ivory tower. Well, we don't have any paper, pens, books, internet, or library. <laughs> but, but, but other than that, it's a piece of cake. <laughs> Kaufman drafted a team of eight librarians on the outside to hunt down materials for the students. They would scan all these primary source documents and print them. And then Kelsey would bring these huge stacks of paper into the prison. Kelsey assigned Michelle Jones the job of doing data analysis on the list of women who were imprisoned at IWP in its early years. I took the registry. I broke it down. I broke down education, temperance, marriage, age incarceration, crime. And as she went through all this data, Michelle noticed something odd. Where are the prostitutes? I said, where are these prostitutes? I'm sure they're somewhere. You had other historians for that time period saying that the prostitutes were everywhere. Like there was a prostitute on every corner. So I'm like, so if they're everywhere and they're not in the jails and they're not in the prisons, where are they? Finally, something turned up. One of the librarians helping the students from the outside found an old article in the state archives that made passing reference to a second correctional institution that opened earlier in 1873, just before IWP. This one was Catholic, run by nuns, and it housed Indianapolis's prostitutes. Kelsey said it was modeled on the Irish Magdalene laundries, where female inmates figuratively cleansed themselves of their sins by washing clothes. And that's what led us then to discover that the Indiana Women's Prison was not the first women's prison in the United States. It wasn't even the first women's prison in Indianapolis, but that there was this whole network of private Catholic prisons for women of any denomination From there, the women started rewriting the history of IWP from within its own walls. They published articles on the forgotten Magdalene laundries and on an 1881 state investigation in which prisoners and staff testified that the two Quaker women who founded IWP beat their prisoners, put them in solitary confinement, pulled their hair and pounded them against walls, even waterboarded them. Anastasia Schmid discovered that IWP's first physician, a doctor named Theophilus Parvin, had also served as president of the American Medical Association while he worked at the prison. Kelsey Kaufman thought this was great. You know, we had the best doctor in the country, the lucky women at the prison. You know, he vaccinated all of them, and so none of the women at the prison got cholera during the big cholera epidemic, et cetera, et cetera. That was not how Anastasia saw things. And I said, are you effing kidding me? Why would the president of the AMA work at a women's prison? 
especially when we're lucky to get a doctor on probation coming through here to work now. I mean, come on, it's night and day. It doesn't make any sense. There's more to that story. She would argue with me back and forth. Well, how do you know? Anna, that's so kind of far-fetched. I don't understand. I don't get it. And I would tell her, what do you mean, how do I know? I am these women. Anastasia discovered that Theophilus Parvin had advocated for removing women's clitorises and ovaries to cure nymphomania and masturbation. He applied cocaine to the genitals of women he believed suffered from what he called excessive desire. He used female inmates as study subjects. Anastasia believes that Parvin took the job at IWP because it gave him something invaluable, a captive population he could study without the restraints that existed on the outside. Was I a historian? Did I want to be a historian? Do I even think I'm a historian now? No, I'm a historian by default, but I've got some really great stuff that I've dug up historically, and I would love to share that with the world. Ready, Jeff, five minutes, five. Basically, that's funny. Five minutes. Oz has spoken. Yeah, that's five minutes before he's ending the uh, closing the building. So we can be counted. Because we're bodies. There's a room in the education building at IWP that holds a couple of tables and a bulky old television that's usually used to conduct remote parole hearings. Just push the button in the middle. On Monday evenings, the TV is used to beam in university professors to lead a history seminar. A professor from Indiana University named Alex Lichtenstein comes into the prison to lead the class. Marcus, can you hear us? I can hear you, Alex. Can you see us? can see us. Anastasia, Michelle, Kim, and five other women sit at a few tables that have been pushed together. The old television is at the head. This evening, Marcus Redeker, a professor at the University of Pittsburgh, is discussing his book on the mutiny aboard the Amistad slave ship. It's maybe the most famous slave rebellion in American history. Steven Spielberg made a movie about it. And Redeker's colleagues thought the idea of doing a book about the Amistad was a loser. And almost all of them said, good luck, you won't find anything new. Nothing new to say about that. Steven Spielberg made a movie, nothing else to say, right. Being naturally hard-headed, <laughs> as I am, yeah, we like that. I didn't listen to a word they said. We don't either. The women read Redeker's book this week. I can see you, Michelle, getting ready to ask a question. Go for it. <laughs> Well, I'm thinking about, um, we've had an introduction to historical scholarship, well, basically, which is called, what is it called in the real world? Historiography. Historiography. In the real world. That's not the real world. You had it right. In the real world. Historical We've been learning a lot about Foucault, obviously, and the subjugated knowledges. And one of the things I wrote in the margin, even with 2,500 articles published, the story of the African, the Amistad Africans themselves, is still subjugated. Um, it reminded me that, again, we see that mm-hmm. in the women's prison. Mm-hmm. But Well, we don't have the story thus far of anyone other than the story of the reformers who've been heralded as mothers of feminism. This is Anastasia Schmid. So there's a whole block of voices that have been completely obliterated from history, and this is part of what we're attempting to do, is put that voice into history. When you sit in on a class here, you realize that what's happening at IWP gets beyond the idea that educating prisoners is good because it reduces crime or spending on prisons. Michelle Jones will apply for parole next year, Anastasia Schmid in about six years, but Kim Baldwin's earliest release date is 2040. The question of whether she'll commit another crime isn't particularly relevant. She'll be 74, probably older, by the time she's out. Anastasia Schmid says the history project is about something different than that. What we have done with this history project now is given the world knowledge that the world previously did not have until we found what we found and we've given it to them. Just because we're incarcerated, just because we've been here for a length of time, just because at one point in our life we all made a bad decision, We're valuable human beings with something to offer the world. And that's what we've done. It's hard to get things in and out of a prison. Mail is read, visitors are patted down, 
Packages are checked for contraband. That endless flow of information that we're so used to on the outside, the trillions of gigabytes of data that we can access with the tap of a finger, that flow stops at the prison walls. And information rarely flows the other way either, from the inside to the outside. And so the women of the Indiana Women's Prison have had to find their own way to talk to the outside. And they've done it through the stories of the women who lived and died here 150 years ago. That was Samara Freemark. Since Samara visited Indiana Women's Prison, Kim Baldwin was transferred to a much larger facility in Rockville, Indiana. There are some technical programs at Rockville, culinary arts and cosmetology, but no higher education classes. Anastasia Schmidt won a court appeal and could get a new trial in her case. Michelle Jones has a parole hearing next fall. She's optimistic she's going to get out, and right now she's working on putting together applications to Ph.D. programs in history and American studies on the outside. You've been listening to Rewriting the Sentence, College Behind Bars. It was produced by Samara Freemark and edited by Catherine Winter. The web editor is Dave Peters. The web producer, Andy Cruz. Associate production by Suzanne Pico and Ryan Katz. Research and production help from Alex Bumhart and Lila Cherneff. Additional reporting by Brianna Breen. Special thanks to Liz Lyon for music help. The APM Reports team includes Emily Hanford, Sasha Eslanian, Ellen Gettler, Chris Worthington, and me, Stephen Smith. We've got a lot more about this story at our website. You can see some of the articles written by women at the IWP and get more information on the state of prison education across the country. That's at apmreports.org. You can also browse our archive of documentaries about education and sign up for Educate, our weekly education podcast. We'd like to know what this program has made you think about, so please let us know. You can find contact information at our website, or you could write us a review on iTunes. We're also on Facebook, and we are on Twitter, where our handle is at Educate Podcast, one word. Support for this program comes from Lumina Foundation and the Spencer Foundation. This is APM, American Public Media.